This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. Hello and welcome to Witnesses of History for early September and a couple of reports this time from September 1940 during the Battle of Britain. And we start indeed with one from a dogfight over the channel as witnessed by Richard Hillary. September the 3rd dawned dark and overcast with a slight breeze ruffling the waters of the estuary. Hornchurch Aerodrome, 12 miles east of London, wore its usual morning pallor of yellow fog, lending an added air of grimness to the daily silhouetted spitfires around the boundary. From time to time, a balloon would poke its head grotesquely through the mist as though looking for possible victims before falling back like some tired monster. We came out onto the tarmac at about eight o'clock. During the night, our machines had been moved from the dispersal point over to the hangars. All the machine tools, oil and general equipment had been left on the far side of the aerodrome. I was worried. We'd been bombed a short time before, and my plane had been fitted out with a new cockpit hood. This hood, unfortunately, would not slide open along its groove, and with a depleted ground staff and no tools, I began to fear it never would. Unless it did open, I shouldn't be able to bail out in a hurry if I had to. Miraculously, Uncle George Denham, our squadron leader, produced three men with a heavy file and lubricating oil, and the Corporal Fitter and I set upon the hood in a fury of haste. We took it, turn by turn, filing and oiling, oiling and filing, until at last the hood began to move, but agonisingly slowly. By ten o'clock, when the mist had cleared and the sun was blazing out of a clear sky, the hood was still sticking firmly halfway along the groove. At 10.15, what I had feared for the last hour happened. Down the loudspeaker came the emotionless voice of the controller. 603 Squadron, take off and patrol base. You will receive further orders in the air. 603 Squadron, take off as quickly as you can, please. As I pressed the starter and the engine roared into life, the corporal stepped back and crossed his fingers significantly. I felt the usual sick feeling in the pit of the stomach, as though I were about to row a race, and then I was too busy getting into position to feel anything. Uncle George and the leading section took off in a cloud of dust. Brian Carberry looked across and put up his thumbs. I nodded and opened up to take off for the last time from Hornchurch. I was flying number three in Brian's section, with Stapney Stapleton on the right, The third section consisted only of two machines, so that our squadron's strength was eight. We headed southeast, climbing all out on a steady course. At about 12,000 feet, we came up through the clouds. I looked down and saw them spread out below me like layers of whipped cream. The sun was brilliant and made it difficult to see even the next plane when turning. I was peering anxiously ahead, for the controller had given us warning of at least 50 enemy fighters approaching very high. When we did first sight them, nobody shouted, as I think we all saw them at the same moment. They must have been 500 to 1,000 feet above us and coming straight on like a swarm of locusts. I remember cursing and going automatically into line astern. The next moment we were in among them, and it was each man for himself. 
As soon as they saw us, they spread out and dived, and the next ten minutes was a blur of twisting machines and tracer bullets. One Messerschmitt went down in a sheet of flame on my right, and a Spitfire hurtled past in a half-roll. I was weaving and turning in a desperate attempt to gain height, with the machine practically hanging on the airscrew. Then, just below me and to my left, I saw what I'd been praying for, a Messerschmitt climbing and away from the sun. I closed in to 200 yards, and from slightly to one side gave him a two-second burst. Fabric rift off the wing, and black smoke poured from the engine. But he didn't go down. Like a fool, I did not break away, but put in another three-second burst. Red flame shot upwards and he spiralled out of sight. At that moment, I felt a terrific explosion which knocked the control stick from my hand and the whole machine quivered like a stricken animal. In a second, the cockpit was a mass of flames. Instinctively, I reached up to open the hood. It would not move. I tore off my straps and managed to force it back, but this took time, and when I dropped back into the seat and reached for the stick in an effort to turn the plane on its back, the heat was so intense that I could feel myself going. I remember a second of sharp agony, remember thinking, so this is it, and putting both hands to my eyes. Then I passed out. When I regained consciousness, I was free of the machine and falling rapidly. I pulled the ripcord on my parachute and checked my descent with a jerk. Looking down, I saw that my left trouser leg was burnt off, that I was going to fall into the sea and that the English coast was deplorably far away. About 20 feet above the water, I attempted to undo my parachute, failed and flopped into the sea with it billowing around me. I was told later that the machine went into a spin at about 25,000 feet and that at 10,000 feet, I fell out unconscious. This may well have been so, for I discovered later a large cup on the, cut on the top of my head, presumably collected while bumping round inside. The water was not unwarm and I was pleasantly surprised to find that my life jacket kept me afloat. I looked at my watch, it was not there. Then, for the first time, I noticed how burnt my hands were. Down to the wrist, the skin was dead white and hung in shreds. I felt faintly sick from the smell of burnt flesh. By closing one eye, I could see my lips jutting out like motor tyres. The side of my parachute harness was cutting into me particularly painfully, so that I guess my right hip was burnt. I made a further attempt to undo the harness, but owing to the pain of my hands, soon desisted. Instead, I lay back and reviewed my position. I was a long way from land, my hands were burnt, and so, judging from the pain of the sun, was my face. It was unlikely that anyone on shore had seen me come down, and even more unlikely that a ship would come by. I could float for possibly four hours in my May West. I began to feel that perhaps I had been premature in considering myself lucky to have escaped from the machine. After about half an hour, my teeth started chattering, and to quiet them, I kept up a regular tuneless chant, varying it, varying it from time to time with calls for help. There can be few, more futile pastimes than yelling for help alone in the North Sea with a solitary seagull for company, Yet it gave me a certain melancholy satisfaction, for I had once written a short story in which the hero, falling from a liner, had done just this. It was rejected. The water now seemed much colder, and I noticed with surprise that the sun had gone in, though my face was still burning. I looked down at my hands, and not seeing them, realised that I had gone blind. So I was going to die. It came to me like that. 
I was going to die, and I wasn't afraid. This realisation came as a surprise. The manner of my approaching death appalled and horrified me, but the actual vision of death left me unafraid. I felt only a profound curiosity and a sense of satisfaction that within a few minutes or a few hours I was to learn the great answer. I decided that it should be a few minutes. I had no qualms about hastening my end, and reaching up, I managed to unscrew the valve of my May West. The air escaped in a rush, and my head went underwater. It is said by people who have all but died in the sea that drowning is a pleasant death. I didn't find it so. I swallowed a large quantity of water before my head came up again, but derived little satisfaction from it. I tried again to find that I could not get my face under. I was so enmeshed in the parachute, I couldn't move. For the next ten minutes, I tore my hands to ribbons on the spring release catch. It was stuck fast. I lay back exhausted. And then I started to laugh. By this time, I was probably not entirely normal, and I doubt if my laughter was in wholly sane, but there was something irresistibly comical in my grand gesture of suicide being so simply thwarted. Goethe once wrote that no one, unless he had led the full life and realised himself completely, had the right to take his own life. Providence seemed determined that I should not incur the great man's displeasure. It is often said that a dying man relives his whole life in one rapid kaleidoscope. I merely thought gloomily of the squadron returning, of my mother at home and of the few people who would miss me. Outside my family, I could count them on the fingers of one hand. What did gratify me enormously was to find that I indulged in no frantic abasement or prayers to the Almighty. It is an old jibe of God-fearing people that the irreligious always change their tune when about to die. I was pleased to think I was proving them wrong. Because I seemed to be in for an indeterminate period of waiting, I began to feel a terrible loneliness and sought for some means to take my mind off my plight. I took it for granted that I must soon become delirious and I attempted to hasten the process. I encouraged my mind to wander vaguely and aimlessly with the result that I did experience a certain peace. But when I forced myself to think of something concrete, I found that I was still only too lucid. I went on shuttling between the two with varying success until I was picked up. I remember as in a dream hearing somebody shout, it seemed so far away and quite unconnected with me. Then willing arms were dragging me over the side, my parachute was taken off, and with such ease, a brandy flask was pushed between my swollen lips, and a voice said, OK, Joy, Joe, it's one of ours, and still kicking, and I was safe. I was neither relieved nor angry, I was past caring. It was to the Margate lifeboat that I owed my rescue. Watchers on the coast had seen me come down, and for three hours they'd been searching for me. Owing to wrong directions, they were just giving up and turning back for land when, ironically enough, one of them saw my parachute. They were then 15 miles east of Margate. While in the water, I'd been numb and had felt very little pain. Now that I began to thaw out, the agony was such that I could have cried out. The good fellows made me as comfortable as possible, put up some sort of awning to keep the sun from my face, and phoned through for a doctor. It seemed to me to take an eternity to reach shore. I was put into an ambulance and driven rapidly to hospital. Through all this, I was quite conscious, though unable to see. At the hospital, they cut off my uniform, 
I gave the requisite information to a nurse about my next of kin, and then, to my infinite relief, felt a hypodermic syringe pushed into my arm. From war to a short report in the Daily Telegraph on September the 6th, 1905, of the signing of the peace treaty that ended the Russian-Japanese War. Peace was signed at Portsmouth yesterday. This time there was no further postponement. The plenipotentiaries gave a final reading to the precious document which had caused them such anxieties and heartburnings, and then Monsieur Witter took up the pen and set his name to the parchment amid the ringing of church bells and a salute of guns. Baron Kamura did the same, and the Treaty of Portsmouth was complete, save for the formal ratification by Tsar and Mikado, which will follow in due course. All uncertainty, therefore, is happily at an end. The last fear of any hitch is dissipated. The devastating Russo-Japanese war is really over. Not another shot will, we hope, be fired in Manchuria, and not another life lost. Well, between the Russo-Japanese war and the Second World War was, of course, the Great War, the First World War, and in September 1915, Lance Corporal Baxter wins the DCM on the Western Front, as reported by Robert Graves. From the morning of September the 24th to the night of October the 3rd, I had in all eight hours of sleep. I kept myself awake and alive by drinking about a bottle of whiskey a day. I'd never drunk it before and have seldom drunk it since, but it certainly helped me then. We had no blankets, greatcoats or waterproof sheets, nor any time or material to build new shelters. The rain poured down. Every night we went out to fetch in the dead of the other battalions. The Germans continued indulgent and we had few casualties. After the first day or two, the corpses swelled and stank. I vomited more than once while superintending the carrying. Those we could not get in from the German wire continued to swell until the wall of the stomach collapsed. Either naturally or when punctured by a bullet, a disgusting smell would float across. The colour of the dead faces changed from white to yellow-grey to red to purple to green to black to slimy. On the morning of the 27th, a cry arose from no man's land. A wounded soldier of the Middlesex had recovered unconsciousness after, recovered consciousness after two days. He lay close to the German wire. Our men heard it and looked at each other. We had a tender-hearted Lance Corporal named Baxter. He was the man to boil up a special Dixie for the sentries of his section when they came off duty. As soon as he heard the wounded Middlesex man, he ran along the trench calling for a volunteer to help fetch him in. Of course, no one would go. It was death to put one's head over the parapet. When he came running up to ask me, I excused myself as being the only officer in the company. I would come out with him at dusk, I said, not now. So he went alone. He jumped quickly over the parapet, strolled across no man's land, waving a handkerchief. The Germans fired to frighten him, but since he persisted, they let him come up close. Baxter continued towards them, and when he got to the Middlesex man, stopped and pointed to show the Germans what he was at. Then he dressed the man's wounds, gave him a drink of rum and some biscuit that he had to, with him, and promised to be back again at nightfall. He did come back with a stretcher party, and the man eventually recovered. I recommended Baxter for the Victoria Cross, being the only officer who had witnessed the action, but the authorities thought it worth no more than a Distinguished Conduct Medal. 
And now a collection of reports from the Daily Telegraph in September 1970 about the skyjacked British airliner blown up on Revolution Airfield. A skyjacked BOAC VC-10 airliner with 114 people on board, including 30 British schoolchildren, was landed on a desert airstrip in Jordan last night to stand beside the Swiss Air and Transworld planes seized on Sunday. The coup added to the commando ransom for the release of Lila Khaled, the girl guerrilla held in London, to help the Arab guerrilla's new hostages, who include pregnant women as well as the children returning from holidays, the Red Cross is supplying a thousand meals and baby food. Red Cross negotiators, who are putting a concerted path policy by Britain, America, Germany and Switzerland to the guerrillas in Jordan, won a breathing space last night. The guerrillas agreed to leave their hostages unharmed until Mushal Rocha, Red Cross delegate, could leave Amman to meet them. While Prime Minister Heath carried an emergency talks last night at number 10, diplomatic efforts to rescue the hundreds of airline hostages shifted to New York. The UN Security Council, meeting at the urgent request of Britain and America, appealed for the immediate release of passengers and crew. Germany and Switzerland are holding six jailed commandos named in the guerrilla ultimatum, which, according to American information, involved blowing up the passengers with the captured planes unless demands were met. Arab guerrillas who skyjacked the jet over the Persian Gulf threatened to blow it up at Beirut airport if the Lebanese authorities refused to refuel it. Then, after refueling, the plane was flown at gunpoint from Beirut to Dawson's Field in Jordan, east of Amman, the Revolution airfield, where the other jets skyjacked on Sunday are being held hostage by the Popular Front for the liberation of Palestine. Laila Khalid, 24, the Palestinian Arab held after Sunday's attempted skyjack at Heathrow, has refused to answer questions put to her by special branch detectives at Ealing Police Station, where she is under armed guard. She talks freely, however, about the cause of the Popular Front for the liberation of Palestine. A few days later, on September the 14th, the paper reported eight Britons were among the 40 skyjacked hostages still being held by Arab guerrillas last night as a secret hideout believed to be in the Wadet refugee camp, the Popular Front stronghold in Amman. They included the captain and two officers of the BOEC VC-10. British children were among the 62 passengers and crew of the VC-10 who arrived at Heathrow yesterday. On Saturday, the guerrillas blew up the plane and the two other airliners held at Revolution Airfield. And finally on this, from October the 1st, 1970, Lila Khaled was freed last night and flown out of Britain on her way to Cairo. She was put aboard an RAF Comet which flew to Munich to pick up three Arabs released by West Germany and then on to Zurich to collect three other Arabs freed by Switzerland. And on a lighter note from the following year, September the 6th, 1971, the Daily Telegraph's Alan Smith reports, Princess Anne became individual European three-day event champion at Burley, Lincolnshire, yesterday, as she and her horse Doublet led a rout of competitors from nine countries. The Queen presented her with the Raleigh Trophy. British riders filled the first eight places in the individual classification and the British team, of which the Princess was not a member, beat the Russians to second place with more than 400 points to spare. This was the team's fifth consecutive success in continental, world or Olympic championships. 
Princess Anne and Dublet had the second fastest time over Saturday's cross-country course, and she said yesterday she had no particular worries, although Dublet took a fairly hard knock. Dublet, an eight-year-old by Douglas, bred by the Queen, is trained by Alison Oliver. In yesterday's show jumping over a not-too-difficult 12-fence course, Princess Anne and Dublet had the additional hazard of a loud, low-flying aircraft. This is the first time a member of the royal family has ever held a European equestrian title. Her success was all the more credible inasmuch as she underwent an operation about two months ago. She said that although she was not as fit as she might be, she had exercised a good deal since the operation, even when cruising in the Royal Yacht Britannia. The French horse Quaker dropped out before the show jumping, having damaged a knee cross-country, and Ireland looked like taking the team's silver medal, but Russia came through to beat them. Princess Anne's rise to the pinnacle of international achievement in just over three years has been little short of meteoric, due partly to her own dedication, partly to the ability of her horse, and perhaps most of all by the training of both herself and doublet by Alison Oliver. As with Mary Gordon Watson and Cornishman V5 two years ago, they were left out of the official team, but won the individual title. Princess Anne and doublet led in the dressage and the maintain their advantage. And we end by going back to 1940 and the beginning of the Blitz. As foiled in their attempt to destroy the RAF, the Germans turned their attention to London. The raid on the Surrey docks on the evening of the 7th of September was the start of the London Blitz and is reported here by Desmond Flower. Suddenly we were gaping upwards. The brilliant sky was crisscrossed from horizon to horizon by innumerable vapour trails. The sight was a completely novel one. We watched, fascinated, and all work stopped. The little silver stars sparkling at the heads of the vapour trails turned east. This display looked so insubstantial and harmless, even beautiful. Then, with a dull roar which made the ground across London shake as one stood upon it, the first sticks of bombs hit the docks. Leisurely, enormous mushrooms of black and brown smoke shot with crimson climbed into the sunlit sky. There they hung and slowly expanded, for there was no wind, and the great fires below fed more smoke into them as the hours passed. On Friday and Saturday morning the sky grew darker and darker as the oily smoke rose and spread in heavy, immobile columns, shutting out the sun. Now we were nearer to the docks. The columns of smoke merged and became a monstrous curtain which blocked the sky. Only the billows within it and the sudden shafts of flame which shot up hundreds of feet made one realise that it was a living thing and not just the backdrop of some nightmare opera. There were fire hoses along the side of the road, climbing over one another like a helping of macaroni, with those sad little fountains spraying out from the leaks, as they always seem to do from all fire hoses. Every two or three minutes we would pull into the gutter as a fire bell broke out stridently behind us and an engine in unfamiliar livery tore past at full tilt, chocolate or green or blue, with gold lettering, City of Birmingham Fire Brigade or Sheffield or Bournemouth. The feeling was something you'd never experienced before. The excitement and dash of fire engines arriving to help from so far away and the oily, evil smell of fire and destruction with its lazy, insolent rhythm.
You've been listening to the Witnesses of History podcast with Jeff Longley. The music was by Eric Matias, www.soundimage.org. <laughs>